0: Thank y'all for being here tonight, and you do need a handout, although you don't really have to have a handout for in the class, but it would be great for you to take it home because there's some things in there that we are not going to be covering, so make sure you do get a handout. If you didn't get one, you need that for sure. Um, the rest, the other handout is just a, uh, an outline of what we're covering, and yes, we're going to try to cover 10 or 11 chapters of Revelation tonight. If you know anything, oh, I'm losing my thing here. If you know anything about Revelation, you would never dare do this. So um, Jesus said everything is possible with him. And so that's what we're counting on tonight and for the next two weeks after this. So we are going to endeavor to cover 22 chapters of Revelation. Some of the chapters are very short. Thank you, Lord. Some of them are very long. And so... We're going to try to take it verse by verse. However, sometimes you'll see that I will skip a couple of verses, but we will hit all of the the big important things. Please grab a handout when you come in. Um, Before we get started, though, the most important thing is to seek the Lord's presence. And I know with this number of believers in the room, the Holy Spirit filling you, filling me, we have a room full of the Holy Spirit. So we know he's here. But I do want to thank him for his presence if you just bow with me right now. Father, we do come into your presence now, and we just thank you. We thank you for the privilege of being able to call you Father, and you are a good, good Father. Father, we ask that you would just come now and open up our hearts and our minds that we might have um, the intelligence and the desire to hear from you tonight from your word Lord, we ask that you, as you promised in your scripture, that you would send your Holy Spirit to reveal your truth to us. So teach us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would bring an anointing on your word tonight. I thank you for the blessing that you have stated in the first of this book of Revelation, that all who will read it will be blessed. I thank you for that blessing. And now I ask, Lord, that you would um, just come and teach us, each one of us. I pray, Father, where are The scripture is not exactly clear, that you would just give us grace to understand those parts. Where it is clear, Lord, I pray that we would not diminish it in anything that we would think or say. But Lord, I pray that the scripture would be able to speak loudly as you've indicated for it to. I thank you, Lord, that your word has been sent to us as a gift, that you have um, exalted your word alongside your name. I thank you, Lord, that your word will accomplish every purpose for which you have sent it. And I am just so grateful, Lord, that I can stand here. What a privilege it is to be able to open the word with other believers. And I just pray for your presence and your anointing for this time in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, now I'm going to tell you all there's no original thoughts, at least not with me. Let me go ahead and tell you. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an original thinker. I don't think I have a little bit of creativity. However, I don't try to get real creative with the scripture. Um, but I do want to tell you, and I want to give credit to a brilliant man who is now with the Lord. His name is Henry Morris. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but if you've ever heard of the Institute for Creation Research, they also have the Ark project. If you've heard of that in Kentucky, um, He is the man that that wrote the book that I'm going to be taking most of the information from. I'm bringing it. You can see my poor old book is battered. My parents gave me this book for Christmas in 1997. But since the word of God has not changed since he issued it from his mouth, I think this is still very relevant for us today. So I just want to give credit where credit is due. If it sounds like a brilliant statement, it's not from me, okay? just saying. So I'm just... um, I want you to understand and hear everything that the scripture has to say. I'm going to be talking quickly, I think, and I will pause for questions. Not that I can answer them, but I will attempt to do my very best throughout all of this. By the way, my name is Tamara Wales. Tamara, it rhymes with camera, okay? (laughs) Wales, like The country and not the mammal. Got that? Okay, so whales has no H. That's the one that's in the sea. All right, um, so we're going to start with Revelation 1. Let's start from the top. Y'all ready? All right. Y'all listen fast. (laughs) Who, what, where, when, why, and when. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, some 60 years after all of his fellow disciples had been martyred, he wrote the book of Revelation John was exiled to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea by the, Roman, um, the cruel Roman emperor Domitian. He was exiled because of one thing. He is non-compromising testimony of Jesus Christ. They just couldn't shut him up, though. <laughs> so for whom has the revelation been written? It's written for the servants or the bond servants of Jesus Christ. That would be you and me. Why is the revelation or the unveiling given to John? It was given to reveal the things which are on God's kingdom calendar and to prepare us for what will unfold next. And the day we live in, don't you want to know everything you can know about what's coming? Amen. And the Lord wants us to know. And so he gives us a revelation. Know that this is a revelation. It's not intended to be mysterious nor secretive. Thus God has named it, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because John is describing things he's never seen before. At a lot of times, he's never seen these things before. He's going to use imagery and symbolism to convey some of the scenes that are unfolding before his eyes. Most of the time throughout this book, John will include literal explanations for what he's seeing. And I should note here, and I I think I mentioned it last week, I am a literalist when it comes to the Bible. I believe that God could have authored the Bible in any way that he would choose. When God said he created the world in six days, I actually believe that's exactly what he did. When God chooses to use metaphors in describing things within the Bible, he says that things appeared as such and such, or he'll say they it looked like such and such. He's trying to give us a picture of what this looks like. It's a metaphor. But when God says that something is as it is, I believe he means what he says. Okay? So what will make up the content of Revelation? The word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and the eyewitness of John will make up the book. And where does the Revelation originate? Revelation 1 verses 4 and 5 says this, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia... Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The revelation is sent to the seven churches with grace and peace. And from whom is it sent? It's from the Trinity. Did you catch that? God the Father. He's described as Him who is, who was, and who is to come. In verse four, it signifies the immortality or the I amness of God. I am, He says. He's a self existent being. He has no beginning, He has no end. Also sent from the Holy Spirit, says the seven spirits that are before His throne. And then Jesus Christ, who is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Note that John is in the spirit, worshiping on the Lord's day, when suddenly he hears a voice addressing him, and the voice sounds like a trumpet. Listen to what it says in Revelation 1, 10 through 20. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And after turning, I I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and wrapped around the chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow." And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been heated to a glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Did y'all hear that? He said what it was, and then he said, this is what it is. He said, the seven stars are the seven angels. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I think we have a picture of Jesus standing. That's an artist's rendition, of course. John did not write, draw this picture, but someone else did and tried to get all of the characteristics from the scripture in there and I'm sure it was a frightening sight for John to have seen Jesus like this. Who alone can this be? I answered, it's Jesus, right? Who 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 else is first and last? Who else was dead and is now alive forevermore? Amen. Who else speaks with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? Okay, he is Jesus and he is in the midst of his churches here in this description. And he is in the midst of his churches today. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, the seven stars of the seven angels. Let's talk about the stars for just a minute. The stars are actual angels. And why do I say that? Because 67 other times in Revelation, we, he calls stars angels. Okay, so 67 times. We can conclude that true churches of the Lord today are assigned individual angels for the purpose of watching over and guiding them. Pastors, they come and they go, don't they? But the assigned angels always remain. And as believers, we also are assigned angels. Let's talk about Hades. Hades, and I'm wondering why I have the Hades thing right here. Oh, because he descended into Hades. Okay, I'm so sorry. I'm looking at my notes. Hades. Hades, we need to um, understand what Hades is, what's the difference between Hades, Sheol, the bosom of Abraham, paradise. All of these terms are used in the Bible. So let's talk about them for a minute. Hades is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol. They both refer to the place where human spirits go at the time of death. Hades is a real place currently existing in our cosmos and holding the spirits of the unsaved dead. Unsaved dead. Until the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, this place held all spirits of the dead, both saved and unsaved, though they were separated by a great gulf. Remember the story Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. I don't know if you remember that. And where was Lazarus? Recall, he was yeah, in the what? He was in the bosom of Abraham. But what could he see? He could see over a chasm. And what could the rich man see? He could see Lazarus being comforted in the bosom of Abraham. And, and the rich man tried to get some help from Lazarus, who he had abused all his earthly days, if you remember. But there was a great chasm fixed. And if you recall, Abraham told the rich man that this chasm is fixed and we cannot go there and you cannot go here. So there is all the unsaved dead before Jesus crucified. They all were in the same place, yet divided by a great chasm. Okay. This compartmentalized Hades took a dramatic change upon the death of Jesus. He descended into Hades to proclaim his victory to the evil spirits incarcerated there, and then he dramatically set those free that were saved and led them to heaven. Now, this might sound like something you've never heard before, but I'm going to show you in scripture where we can see the evidence of it. The pre-Calvary believers that lived safely in Abraham's bosom had trusted God's word that one day they would be redeemed. Now the Redeemer had come and paid the redemption price in full, and he, Jesus, escorted them from Sheol into heaven. How is it that Jesus describes himself as holding the keys of both death and Hades? How does he get the keys? He descended into Hades. In Ephesians, we see Paul writes, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Christ rendered Satan powerless. In order to take keys away, you must first defeat the one who has them, right? Okay, Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ proclaimed victory in Hades. First Peter tells us, For Christ also suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to God But bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. Death's power was overcome. Romans tells us, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. All right. Any questions on chapter one? That's going to go quickly. I'll take this off before I suffocate. Okay. Do y'all understand the whole thing about Hades and all of that? Okay. If you recall when Jesus uh, rose from the dead, do you remember what happened on the streets of Jerusalem? I mean, I'm sorry, when he was crucified, do you remember what happened on the streets of Jerusalem? Do you remember that they were spirits that were walking around the streets? Those were those that were um, led to freedom from from Hades. Chapters 2 and 3, I've titled Letters from the Heart of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the specific instructions and warnings and exhortations to the seven churches that Jesus enumerated to us in chapter 1. A lot can be said about these messages. Look, whole sermons are are given on each of these seven seven messages. I just want to tell you, we're going to do a flyover, okay? It's going to be very, very quick. Note that there are seven churches, seven, the perfect number representing the complete church of Jesus Christ in all the world and for all time. We will see repeated sevens. I think in your handouts, you have a, a document called the sevenness, a revelation. Why does God use seven? What does it represent? Perfection, completeness. It's completion. Right. It, it's the whole picture. It's everything you need to know. It's the whole thing. So when he says seven churches, I believe it's representative of all churches. The complete church of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ. Let's look at these churches. And um, let me just... Let me just say this, their problems are our problems. Their problems are our problems. We must take the letters personally, both for ourselves and for our church, okay? So number one, I call it the fallen out of love church and it's Ephesus. Like a marriage that has gone stale, this church has lost that loving feeling. (laughs) The, the The church at Ephesus is the oldest, the largest and the strongest of the seven churches. This church had a good, strong start, but the love grew cold. Though its good deeds continued, they were without the original passion of first love. And a couple of questions. Do you remember the caliber of your first love of Jesus immediately following your salvation? Do you remember that? That passion for Christ. You wanted to tell everybody. It was the most important thing that had ever happened to you because it was the most important thing that had ever happened to you. You were snatched from hell, and you were given a place in heaven. You were redeemed, and that was exciting and passionate. But somehow, sometimes we get to a place where we can't remember. We can remember it, but we're not living that passionate love for Christ anymore. And Jesus nailed them on this. He said, you've lost your first love. The second question I would have for you is, how would you rate your love now? Have you lost your passion for Christ? Get it back. Get it back. The Nicolaitans had gradually infiltrated this church at Ephesus. They were leading astray those who desire to know Jesus, and they taught a false god. They were, they were false prophets. Do you think we have false prophets today yes. in our churches they look a whole lot, of, they look a lot different And some, I mean, they they, they can manifest in so many different ways. But how do we know what a false prophet looks like? Well, the scripture tells us, and it's wise for us to know, so we can recognize what's not legitimate from God. And here's some um, of the qualifications. John gives us all of these. First John 4, 3 says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and guess what? Now is in the world. He's already in the world. 2 John 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And then um, the next one, 2 John 10 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Let me warn you when they come to my door, because they do all the time, do they come to your door? And maybe because where I live on Bork Road and I have a big circular driveway and everybody turns around on our driveway because it's gravel and it's not cement. I think that's why the people turn around. On our, but they come and we get these visitors all the time from some local cults. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They want to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I take this scripture and I read it to them. I get my Bible and I say, stay right here. I'm going to go read you a scripture. And I turn to 2 John 10 and I read this. I say, you do not bring the same teaching. And so you're not welcome in my house. And um, I have, it doesn't take a lot of boldness to read the scripture and just tell them to have a good day, but we don't agree on this. Don't let them into your house. Don't think you're going to convince them. Okay, let's talk about the second church. It's the persecuted church, and um, it is the church of Smyrna. Listen to the name Smyrna. It comes from the word myrrh. And what is myrrh known for? for? Do you remember? Right. It's, it's a church. burial spice. It was the spice used for the dead bodies, to prepare the dead bodies for burial. It was prophetically presented to Jesus by the wise men. Do you remember? Yeah. It's interesting to note that until myrrh is crushed, it will not release its fragrance. This church is the crushed church of Smyrna. Being crushed was the distinguishing characteristics of this church. One of John's converts, Polycarp, was a pastor here until his martyrdom in 8155. Though they are being crushed, Jesus called them rich. Though they are dying. They are not afraid. They have found Paul's words to be true that he wrote in Romans, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor, thing pre- nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And then James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Then Second Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Within 200 years of this letter, some 6 million Christians were martyred under the oppressive Roman Caesars. But as it is said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Y'all heard that saying before? It's like wherever blood is shed of a Christian, it plants seeds for many churches to come. This martyrdom caused the scattering of the church into the entire world. Persecution is again on the rise. The number of Christians, the number of Christian martyrs in the 20th century alone was greater than the combined number of every century previous. Did you realize that? Martyrdom is on the rise. What do you see as evidence in America that persecution of Christ is on the rise? Do you see any evidence that it's on the rise now? What, what would you say? No praying in schools? Closing of churches? Because of COVID, some are still closed? What else do you see? They've been making completely all online churches. I'm like, God meant us to be face-to-face. Okay. Not across the water talking to each okay. other. Okay, so online churches. But you see evidence all around of the persecuted church, don't you? Okay. Um, how far will you go to defend your faith? Do you think Jesus excuses our silence when we choose to allow our beliefs to be trampled? Nope. Sometimes it's easy just to be quiet, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy not to stir the pot. Just keep quiet. But is that what... Jesus would want from us. I'm just playing the devil's advocate a little bit. Consider the abortion issue. Let's just take that one thing. Though we know God's stand on abortion, right? We do know God's stand, right? He's the giver of life. Okay. Um, Our nation has legally, legally eliminated the lives of approximately 900,000 children each year for the past 10 years. This is actually a reduction in the number of abortions, which peaked in 1990. Let's look at, but we, a lot of us just be quiet and we keep to ourselves on these matters, but these are important matters to God because we don't want the persecution. We don't want the stigma that comes with, oh, look at that Bible thumper over there, that Jesus freak, they just, you know, can't keep them, et cetera, et cetera. Y'all get what I'm saying. Let's look at the third church. The compromised church is Pergamum. Within the city of Pergamum was located the largest altar in the world, one of the seven wonders of the world at the time, which was the great altar of Zeus. It stood on the highest hill of the city and it towered 800 feet over the plain. The doctrine of Balaam, among other things, was the inclusion of sexual practices in the worship of other gods within the church. Here, the church of Pergamum had not stood firm against such things, but had actually allowed compromises to enter into their church on several fronts. The church tolerated and even allowed false doctrines and worldly thinking to become part of the doctrine. It compromised the whole counsel of God's word to accommodate the popular culture of the day. Did y'all hear that? Okay, unless we allow the word of God to confront our thinking and our attitudes on a regular basis, we will also be swept away into compromise. Mm -hmm. You can see see it happening. You can see it happening in our own lives. You can see it happening in the generation beneath us. I have young adult married children, and I can see it in the way they're parenting. You can see the compromise sneak in. Can you recall a time in your life when the double-edged sword of the word separated something out of you? Is God convicting your heart about anything today? Is there something you've compromised and he's calling you back? Have you made any compromises in your relationship with Christ to accommodate habits or actions or attitudes? Have you been seduced, compromised, or corrupted by a worldly influence? If so, the, the, there's only one answer, and that is repentance, right? turn away. The fourth church is the corrupted church. Who thought that last one was corrupted? Now we're talking about the corrupted church of Thyatira. This is the longest of the seven letters and rebukes a serious sin. Jesus addresses this church as the offended son of God. He is not happy with this church. Even though this church was abounding and growing in good works and ministry, the prevailing doctrine was failing miserably under the leadership of an immoral woman who he calls Jezebel. Heard of her before, huh? Whether her real name or just a symbolic name, she was allowed a position of prominence against the prescribed rules provided in the New Testament church by Paul. This Jezebel, even after being confronted with her sins, had refused to repent. She was a corrupting element allowed a place of prominence in the church. This is representative of a politically correct tolerance allowed to seep into the church today, thereby allowing the church to adapt itself more to the popular way of thinking than to the holy word of God. Also prevalent in our culture is the now publicized sexual abuse of children by both Protestants and Catholic clergy. Because this particular abuse has been tolerated and or hidden throughout much of the history of the church, it has now exploded all over our culture as a well-aimed gun in the hands of Satan himself. Think about what has happened to this world because of the sexual abuse of children by clergy. Mm How Jesus must grieve this situation. How many families have been, have been just run, wrecked by this. Let's look at the next church. It's called the Dead Church of Sardis. I called it the Dead Church. The Church of Sardis was missing the most basic element, the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus holds the seven spirits of God, he is giving this strong warning before this church takes its last breath. The body of Christ in much of Europe and America has taken its last breath. Have you seen it? And its doors and windows are shuttered and in decay. In some cases, the great churches have taken on the form of a museum. You could go visit them in Europe. Beautiful churches that used to be. Now they're only a, a shell, a, a museum of what they used to be. Jesus has nothing positive to say to this particular dead church. He is bringing a blaring alarm clock saying, wake up before it's too late. Whether it is a physical body or a church, without the spirit, it is dead. Okay. Do your actions and attitudes provide evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit? Is he alive and well in you? Is there evidence in your life that shows everybody that the spirit was within you and he's living. Can you recall the life transformation that you experienced when you were saved? <clears throat> is your heart beating passionately for Jesus in a way to fulfill your sp- spiritual destiny? The purpose God has for your life brings great passion when it is wholly embraced. So I'll just say to y'all, wake up if you're not. The sixth church is the loving church of Philadelphia. We finally got some good news. (laughs) Philadelphia means brotherly love, as we know, okay? Here again, we see Jesus, and he has a key. Keys are for locking and unlocking, right? (laughs) Opening and shutting. They indicate possession, ownership, and authority. Like, who has a key to your house? Um, In his victory over death, Jesus took authority over Hades, Here we also see that he has the key of David, which represents the keys to the kingdoms of the world. Listen to Revelation 3, 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, say this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have followed my word. And have not denied my name. Jesus possesses all keys. He alone has the power and the prerogative to open and shut whatever he will. This little power he talked about from this church is the evidence of God's grace and strength to accomplish mighty works. Remember Paul's description of God's power in Second Corinthians. But he said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you, but for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. In weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This church had held on to God's word. It had not compromised and not become politically correct. It had not buckled to the changing tide of popular psychology. This church's success was in keeping the pure word of God without apology to anyone. Do you know the word of God enough to uphold and defend it? Mm Mm-hmm. That is our challenge, really, as believers today, to know the Word of God enough, well enough, to where we can uphold it and defend it. As you take a personal inventory of your attitudes and actions, would you say your involvement, your evolvement as a person, has been more characterized by keeping up with the changing tide of popular opinion? Or have you become more set apart for God's purpose? Do you live a holy life? The last church is the the apathetic church of Laodicea, cold, hot, or neutral, atheist or apatheist, amen, or whatever. These are the things, the church of apathy, the one that just doesn't care one way or the other is this church. Jesus makes it clear here with the apathetic, but affluent church that he would sooner prefer hot or cold to apathy. Neutral evangelism is a popular way to build a church without making anyone feel bad about their sin. Does anybody know of an example of a church that would, you would say is characterized by neutral evangelism? You know you can live your best life now? Does that ring a bell with anybody? Let's don't talk about sin. Let's don't ever confront something that might make you feel bad about who you are. That's neutral evangelism. What does Jesus say about neutral evangelism? It's lukewarm. He's going to not only spit, he's going to vomit you out of his mouth. (coughs) This doctrine is non-confrontational. It keeps an open dialogue with everyone, whether on the right or the left. It cannot preach the hard truths of the gospel because it seeks to accommodate everyone wherever they are. It is the ultimate seeker-friendly church. This church does the most harm of all. Many church attendees have believed that they are okay, but really Christ, quote unquote, does not know them. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Have you allowed yourself to be judged by the word of God? Have you examined yourself as the scripture commands us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to see if you were even in the faith? And by what standard are you living your life? 2 Timothy four, three says for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Does anybody have any questions about the seven churches? That was really a flyover. We just briefly touched them. Does anybody have any comments or questions about the seven churches? We are going to get into the prophetic part of the, And some people would say that the seven churches are a prophetic part. They will say that each church represents a church age. I kind of prefer to look at the fact that there are seven churches and it's just the complete body of Christ that he's addressing. And we have some of that in our church. Some of each of those things. Did you recognize? I think so. I think so. Okay. um, We're going to move on to Revelation 4 and 5 if y'all can stand it. Y'all ready? All right. We're moving right along. Throne of God. The throne room of God. This is exciting. This really gets exciting for me. So though the first three chapters of the Revelation deal heavily as a message to the church, the next 18 chapters will make no mention whatsoever of the church. Beginning in chapter 4, the Revelation deals with, quote, those things that are to take place after this. The setting of Revelation 4 and 5 is the great throne room of God in heaven from which the earthly tabernacle and temple were made as replicas. Did y'all get that? Mm -hmm. So when God commanded Moses to create that tabernacle that, that moved across the desert, he had a very specific order of where things should be, how things should be laid out because he was recreating his throne room in heaven on earth. Then again, when Solomon built the first temple, it was the same scenario. Everything was in a very specific order to replicate that which was a, a, the real one in heaven. Okay? So, to say it another way, the throne room was a sort of a template for both the earthly tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem. The centerpiece of this room is the throne of God, and it is the originating point for every created thing, not only In heaven, but of the entire universe. When Revelation 4 begins, we immediately become aware of an open door to heaven, along with an invitation by Jesus himself to come up here. Now, you could look at the timeline. I think it's on there, right? Okay. If you find yourself in support of the rapture. Now, I have given you a whole page of scriptures that... I, find, I, I particularly believe are evidence for the rapture of the body of Christ. This gives me great hope, the rapture of the body of Christ. Um, if you are in the camp that I'm in, I'm not going to talk about pre-trib, mid-trib, post, all that stuff. Okay, I don't even want to understand it. But I do believe that at this point in the revelation is where the uh, rapture occurs. And I think you can see that on here, the rapture right here. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about right now. When Jesus says, come up here, and there's an open door standing in heaven, I believe that is the rapture of the saints. But well, we're going to talk about it. Okay, listen to Revelation 4, 1 through 6, how it starts. John says, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, remember back in Revelation 1, it was that first voice, sounded like a trumpet, speaking with me, said... Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. After what things? What did we just finish talking about? The church age. After these things, I will show you what will happen next. Okay. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and someone was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes front and behind if we have a picture of the throne throne room see it i mean how could you do i mean he's describing it for all he's worth but all we can do is do an artist rendition of what it might have looked like so you see, the throne of God, he says, is encircled by a rainbow. The rainbow, think about its origin. When did we first see the rainbow? After the flood. After the, flood, the Noah's, After the, In Noah's day. And it represents God's mercy and his promise to those who believe that the earth will never again be destroyed by water. The rainbow is mentioned three other times in scripture, always associated with the presence of God. The jasper and sardine stones are the two colors at the opposite ends of the rainbow or the color spectrum. The red possibly symbolizes the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin while the violet symbolizes the divine royalty of God. But note that even in the design of the throne room of heaven, everything, even the colors of the rainbow is placed purposefully. And when he had the tabernacle and the temple built, everything was purposeful. Everything, even down to in the desert when that tabernacle was going to be moving, which of the tribes were going to be situated on each of those corners of that building of that tabernacle? And if you looked at that whole tabernacle set about with all of the tribes encircling and camping around, it made what sign? If you were if you were in a in a what do you call those little things? a helicopter yes if you were in a helicopter looking down on that what would what would it have been, looked like it would have taken the, the the symbol of a cross the way he had those assembled I just think it's everything's purposeful let's talk about the 24 elders who are they the elders are surely redeemed men and not angels The angels would not qualify as elders just for one simple reason, that they are all the same age, created on the same day. Who's created on the same day? All the angels. And they were created before the creation of mankind. Elders elsewhere in the Bible is a word used of men. Elders were chosen representatives and leaders of the people of Israel and in the church. The elders are described as wearing white robes and wearing golden crowns on their heads. The identity of the 24 elders is not revealed. Suffice it to say that these men were chosen by God to sit in a position of honor, possibly dependent on merit ascribed to them by God himself. It seems unlikely to me that the 12 apostles would make up part of the 24 elders, and I only say that for one reason. John doesn't have a throne. Y'all know this. He's talking, and he sees the 24 elders, and he's he's not there, so I'm just thinking To me, it just makes sense that the 12 apostles are not part of those 24 elders. But we don't know. God doesn't tell us, and so it's okay. We just... Okay, so after hearing the anthem of the cherubim, which are the four living creatures, the 24 elders descend their own thrones to bow before God, and they sing a song of thanksgiving. The crowns they had received for their faithful service to God, they would now return to God in praise. Everything belongs to Him anyway. Mm -hmm. Everything begins and ends with him. The elder song is an anthem of thanksgiving, not for salvation, as might be expected, but for God's creation of the world. To every atheist, evolutionist, and weakened faith Christian, God as Creator is the foundation of this story. He began back in Genesis. It is culminated here. He created all for His pleasure. Revelation four eleven says this: "Worthy are You." our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Let's look at the living creatures. Revelation 4, 6 through 8. Who are these four dudes? It says, And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Can you even imagine? I mean, just give me two eyes, you know. More than that, it's kind of freaky. I mean, you know, with the Cyclops, I, I, it just gets weird after two eyes. But he says, full of eyes, before and behind. That just tells me in front and, beh- and behind, beh- in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. Then the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes. He says it again around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Do we see a picture of the living creatures? Kind of see them. They have six wings. So there's only these in the Bible that are ever talked about. And we'll see them again in the book of Ezekiel, the four living creatures. Okay, these four angels are closer to God than any other created being and that would suggest that they take the highest position in the hierarchy of the heavenly host. These are undoubtedly the very same angels described here in Ezekiel. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Seems like the same guys they're talking about. In Revelation, the four faces of the angels are that of a lion. Would you say he is the greatest of all wild animals? The ox is the greatest of all domestic animals. The eagle, the greatest of all flying animals. And man, the greatest of all creation. These six-winged, multi-eyed angels have but one single job description, to sing an unending song of praise to the Lord. As Revelation 5 opens up, the highest court... (coughs) is called to order with the awesome ancient of days seated on the bench. Think of it as a courtroom now because we're going into that that phase of revelation. Court is now in session and the evidence against sinful man has been weighed in the just balances of God. The verdict has been pronounced and the sentence is about to commence. And we already know what the sentence is because Paul tells us, for the wages of sin is what? Death. It's already been passed. The verdict has already been read aloud all through the pages of Scripture. And to each of us, we have a choice to make. What are we going to do with our sin? Because the wages of sin is death. But the what? Yeah. But the gift of God is everlasting life. So it's our choice like it's every person's choice who, who lives in and breathes on this planet. So the earth here is roiling in sin at an unprecedented rate since the removal of the light and salt of the church. Now, if you believe like I believe, the rapture has already happened when this courtroom comes into order, okay? Mm -hmm. So now consider, with the church removed, the light and the salt has been removed from the earth. The living presence of the Holy Spirit within all of the believers has been removed from the earth. Mm -hmm. So what is going to be left is going to be sin The roiling sin, just I I just can't even imagine how bad it's going to be. Man has been abandoned now to his own wickedness as the judge of the universe begins the purging process of the earth. And the scroll with its seven seals is held aloft for all of heaven to see, but who is worthy to open it? And those are the next words we're going to read. So John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that would be God, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, and he came. And took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the Saints what a picture see Jesus is a, a slaughtered lamb because the earth has been held captive by the archenemy of God since the Garden of Eden, it must now be redeemed by the one who qualifies by God's standards. Who but Jesus can redeem sinful man? Who but Jesus can reclaim the fallen world? Who but Jesus meets the unique criteria of being all divine and all man, yet without a sin debt? Note that Jesus appears in Revelation 5 not as the white-haired, fiery-eyed warrior as earlier depicted in chapter 1, but now he appears as the one and only Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. It is in the capacity as the sacrificial Lamb of God that Jesus paid the redemption price for fallen mankind and reclaimed his right as owner of the earth. He has now entered the court as the only one qualified to open the scroll. He has paid the redemption price of the earth with his blood. Now we see a picture of an actual seven-sealed scroll. This is found, it's in the um, Jerusalem, the Archive um, Museum in Jerusalem, I'm sorry. (laughs) So it is actually, it would be a a scroll just like this. It was written on both sides. The exact same thing copied on the inside is copied on the outside. So it's a double deed. It's called a double deed. Let's talk about the scroll. The scroll sealed with seven seals will have been a familiar sight to John. Typically, a title deed to a parcel of property would be written on two scrolls, one sealed and the other left open for anyone to see. In a case that a scroll is written on both sides and sealed with numerous seals indicates that it is a double deed with the exact information written on both sides or an epistograph. A similar deed to this one has been found It's in that, I told y'all it's already in that. Um, it was found near Jericho and it's preserved in Jerusalem by the Israel Department of Antiquities. By God's law, the only person qualified to open a sealed title deed would be one who could first prove his close physical relation to the original owner of the property in dispute. This person would also have to prove his financial means to pay the redemption price. Jesus is identified by one of the 24 elders as being exactly that person with regard to ownership of the earth. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that has overcome. With this identification in the courtroom of heaven, The proof of Jesus' position and authority to claim the title deed of the earth is cinched. Let's look at the physical appearance of the lamb. First of all, you see the marks of death. They were visible, yet the lamb was standing alive. First Peter tells us, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He has seven horns. Horns represent power throughout all of Scripture. Seven horns represent, what do you think? What kind of power? Ultimate. Ultimate, Complete power, right? Because it's seven. He has seven eyes. One eye is able to see and deduce knowledge. While seven eyes indicate complete sight or omniscience. He can see everything. He can see inside our hearts right now. Zechariah says... For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Those seven, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And then Proverbs tells us the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Now we talk about the seven spirits of God because the Lamb was said to have had the seven spirits of God also. The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth indicates omnipresence. Once again, the seven spirits indicating the encompassing presence of God. Jeremiah 23 says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Do we have any question about who this is or his power? Let's talk about heaven's increasing worship of the lamb. Are y'all getting t- uh, tired now? Are y'all getting yeah. tired? Okay. <laughs> we just keep on plumbing yeah, through this here. Time. Okay. Let's talk about heaven's increasing worship of the lamb. I think it's so interesting. But as chapter 5 continues, we are blessed to see how heaven worships the lamb, the lamb that was slain, with ever-increasing song, intensity, and the participants. First, we see the 24 elders and the four living creatures worship in their posture and their praise with a new song in Revelation 5, 8 through 10. It says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That was the first song. The next song is 100 million angels join the song. It says, then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power wealth wisdom might honor glory and blessing and then look at the next layer of praise then all creation everywhere joins in the worship in revelation 5:13 it says and i heard every creature in heaven and on earth And under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Note that included in the worship of the Lamb were new songs, harps, and golden bowls of incense. Evidently, unlike some of us, God is pleased with the singing of new songs. I just want the old hymns, please. (laughs) But it says here, God is pleased with the new songs. They sing new songs. Several times in Scripture, we see that the prayers of the saints are likened unto incense rising before the throne of God. We see in Psalm 141, it says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. We start Revelation 6. Anybody have any questions about Revelation 4 and 5? We're moving right along. We have about 15 more minutes, 20 more minutes. Judgment begins, Revelation 6. The seven-year tribulation commences with the breaking of the first seal. We haven't seen that yet. Other biblical names for this, the greatest judgment on mankind thus far are the days of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the 70th week of Daniel and the time of Jacob's trouble. They all refer to the same series of judgments. Isaiah says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and and it shall be brought low. Ezekiel says, For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a day of doom for all the nations. Daniel says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To bring an everlasting righteousness, to send, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. And Jeremiah says, "Alas, that day is so great; there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it." The word "come" that each of the four living creatures speaks in this following passage we're about to read from Revelation 6 is also the same word for the word "go." So, come and go is the same word in the original language. So they're going to say come, but you're going to see when the living creature says the word come, it's going to be a sending out of of part of these plagues. So the living creatures are sending out the messengers of judgment with each come that they shout. We have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first seal is a conqueror on a white horse. Revelation 6, 1 and 2 tells us, then I saw... When the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come, I looked and behold a white horse and the one who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. These horses are symbolic in heaven of very real events, which will now unfold on the earth. The white horse and the rider are sent out by the lamb to conquer. The next time we will see a white horse with a rider will be in Revelation 19. The rider there is none other than Jesus. He's identified. Here, there is a debate among scholars as to the identity of the rider in Revelation 6-2. Could it be the Antichrist sent out to conquer the wicked men of the world through peace talks and political intrigue? I think Kelly had mentioned he has a bow. He doesn't have a weapon. So um, he's going to speak it. He's going to speak his intrigue out. Or is this Jesus making his initial foray into the battle as ultimate conqueror? Whereas this is the only rider with a crown, thereby suggesting he is a king, the bow that he is carrying has no arrows, suggesting that he will perhaps be a statesman like the Antichrist. Antichrist or Jesus Christ? The Bible does not say, but there seems stronger evidence that this rider is the Antichrist. The second seal is war. Revelation 6, 3 and 4 says, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that people would kill one another, and a large sword was given to him. The red horse and horseman is given a sword to remove peace from the earth. Without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit any longer on the earth, the earth will be a violent, filled place of constant war. The third seal is famine. In Revelation 6, 5, and 6, it says, When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and the one who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. What in the world does that mean? The black horse and the rider is sent with a pair of balances symbolically representing the crash of the world's economy and the resulting famine. The very things needed for survival, wheat and barley, will be scarce and costly. Things typically associated with wealth in New Testament times would be oil and wine, which will be plentiful but not desirable in the face of starvation. The fourth seal is death. Revelation 6, 7, 8 says, And when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold a pale horse, and the one who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with a sword and famine and plague and by by the wild animals of the earth. The pale horse with its rider death will be sent forth to collect those who will succumb from the effects of war and famine, the two previous horses. An amazing one-fourth of the earth's population will die as a result of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Do I believe all that's literal? I do. I absolutely believe it's literal. I think one-fourth of the population will die because of war and famine. I think he, he wanted us to know this, and so he's revealing this to us. Let's look at the fifth seal, and it represents the martyrs. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told that they were to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed, even as they had been, was completed also. These souls underneath the altar, where are they coming from? Who are they? The fifth seal introduces us to this group of people who will show up now and again in the pages of Revelation the souls beneath the altar of God, who are they? If all believers were already raptured and clothed in their glorified bodies, then who are these? There seems to be only one logical answer. These are people on the earth who were martyred during the time of tribulation. It is not difficult to imagine that the rapture of the church will cause a worldwide alarm as millions of Christians will disappear in the twinkling of an eye. Those left behind on the earth will certainly seek an answer as to what happened to the disappeared believers. In their search, many will undoubtedly seek answers in the Bible and other Christian publications, not to mention Christian video content available to anyone with a desire to find it. Through their search and curiosity, many will come to salvation. As we continue to study, we will see that the truth and every truth bearer will not be tolerated. During the, during the tribulation, but they will be stomped out instead and to martyrdom. The souls of these martyrs will take residence beneath the altar of God in heaven. And what do they want? They say it. What do they want? They want vengeance. They cry out for vengeance and judgment against those on the earth who silenced their voices. But Paul tells us in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we will see that in gory and grand detail. The sixth seal, I called just the seal of terror. This is terror. Listen to this. He says, And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became as black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And a fig tree, as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders and the wealthy and the strong and every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand what are the ramifications of this sixth seal first of all it's the first ever worldwide earthquake and it will occur as a fulfillment of Jesus prophecy in mark 13:8 when Jesus said for a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against nation against kingdom there will be earthquakes in various places there will be famines These are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then Luke 21 says there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And you saw John describing the great signs. With earthquakes of large proportion, volcanic activity is inevitable, which would certainly cause the sun to be darkened as the smoke and the ash rise up into the atmosphere. Makes perfect sense. Joel tells us, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Zephaniah says a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The heavens will also shake causing a shower of giant meteorites to fall upon the earth. It is quite possible that a shower of meteorite, meteorites could be the catalyst of the worldwide earthquake. Isaiah says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies rot, roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. That's pretty rough. <clears throat> Revelation 7, judgment and mercy. Let's talk about judgment and mercy. A question to consider at this point is a good question for us to consider. Why would our merciful Father bring such disastrous judgments on the earth if he is supposed to be merciful? Where is his mercy now? Could it be that his mercy is wrapped in judgment? Is there anything that gets the attention of a human being like a disaster? Many times it is not until the pain of disaster gets close and personal that people will turn and seek the Lord. Mm -hmm. Is God at this point still trying to persuade mankind to repent? Yes. So in the revelation scheme of things, we have just witnessed the beginning of God's great judgment through the opening of the first six seals of the title deed to the earth. The earth has experienced a worldwide earthquake, killing one-fourth of the population. Consider the ramifications of just that fact. Wars and violence run rampant since the restraining presence of the Holy Spirit was removed, along with the rapture of believers. The world is experiencing an ongoing famine, remember, which is driving up the price of commodities, thus creating a perfect storm that will soon cause the world's population to clamor for someone to save them. The Antichrist's entrance is just over the horizon. Revelation 7, 1-3 says this, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea. Are the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads? Angels have extraordinary strength as indicated by their physical ability to master control over the wind coming from the four quadrants of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Note that without wind, there cannot be rain, without rain, there is famine. Revelation 7, 4 through 8 says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From Gad, you see it from Asher, all of them. 12,000 from every tribe, which 12 times 12 in my growing up was 144, Right. So 12,000 times 12,000, 144,000. They were all sealed with the seal of God. The great seal of God served as protection over his chosen Israelite believers having been recently saved during the tribulation. Note that no seal is given to the Gentile believers. As God chose Israel to be his own possession, here he reestablishes his decision of old He will not abandon his own. Even if the modern-day Jew cannot accurately trace their genealogy, God has kept perfect records. This passage seems to imply that the the seal will be something visible. We, as born-again believers, are not unfamiliar with the idea of God sealing his children, are we? There is another seal of God given to every believer, and that is what? The Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 tells us, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And again, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Is there an effect of the choosing and sealing of the 144,000 that can be suggested In this chapter of Revelation, what is God's purpose for setting these 144,000 people apart? Could it be possible that the sealed Israelites have been set apart as great worldwide evangelists and preachers? Is there any evidence here that suggests that 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 is their purpose? Yes. God uses old and new methods for evangelism. He will even use the birds of the air to preach the gospel in upcoming chapters. But here it seems possible that the sealed Israelites had a calling to evangelize the world. Romans 10, 14 says, How then are they to call on him to whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? I believe that God in his great mercy will send 144,000 preachers into the world, into this world of upheaval. It is not his will that any perish. The very next scene in heaven is of a vast multitude from the Gentile nations that has been saved during the tribulations. Revelation 7, 9 through 17 says, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation, salvation, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice their praises for salvation. They're being saved out of the tribulation. Mm -hmm. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders responded, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger nor thirst Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away tears from their eyes. This great multitude, notice that the number of the multitude is so great that it cannot be counted. The multitude is taken from every nation and language in the world, Gentiles. The missing from this multitude seems to be the nation of Israel, but God's time has not yet come for his chosen ones. Romans eleven twenty five 25 says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This multitude is clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, singing a sevenfold praise for their great salvation during the tribulation. They are individually being comforted with everything they lacked while during the tribulation, food, water, and shade from the harsh sunlight. We haven't gotten to the harsh sunlight, but it's coming. Their very tears are wiped away by the tender loving hand of God, their Father. God's mercy is exhibited plainly in is bringing hell on earth in order that some will be saved from hell and hell for all eternity. Okay, we can stop there, or I can what do y'all want to go 10 more minutes? Or y'all are y'all ready? Y'all ready? Y'all need to get out of here. Somebody want to say? Y'all want to do another chapter? Okay, let's do chapter eight. Re- Revelation eight is an awful silence. An awful silence. Chapter seven closes with God taking care of the needs of those who had been saved during the tribulation. His tender, merciful hands are not wagging fingers at these new believers saying, I told you, or you should be ashamed of yourself, (laughs) waiting now, until now, to believe. But what we see is merciful hands doing, or wiping away tears. Chapter 8 opens with the final of the seven seals being opened by Jesus the Lamb. Now listen to the words. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense ascended from the angel's hand with the prayers of the saints before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and hurled it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The trumpet judgments praises cease. Every tongue is silenced. A sudden eerie stillness settles on all of heaven as the lamb opens the seventh seal. As the seal is broken, it reveals the next set of seven, the seven trumpet judgments. It's interesting to note that prior to even the first trumpet sound of judgment, an offering of incense and prayer is presented to God. The timing of this offering is critical. What does it mean? Is it a plea for vengeance or mercy? Could this be the prayer of the souls beneath the altar seeking revenge on the inhabitants of the earth that were responsible for their death? According to Revelation 8 verse 5, the prayers lifted up as incense in the censer became a fiery weapon in the hand of the angel. And the weapon is aimed at the earth. Revelation 8:7 says, The first trumpet sounded, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The first trumpet is unprecedented hailstorm, burns one-third of all trees and all green grass Because the earth has already become dry and parched, remember from the famine, the lightning associated with the hailstorm will easily ignite the forests and the grass. Revelation 8, 8 and 9 says, The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was hurled into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The second trumpet, a burning mountain cast into the sea, causes a third of the sea to become blood. The effect of this burning mountain will kill sea life, causing a red tide of blood in the ocean and devastate the shipping industry. Revelation 8, 10 through 11 says, The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The star is named Wormwood and a third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood is the deadly liquor ingredient known as absinthe. It is also translated in the Old Testament and by Shakespeare as hemlock. The deadly effect of this judgment comes from the poison that will ruin the water supply rather than the effect of the impact of the fall, that the falling star makes. Revelation 8, 12 says the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun, a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. One third of the sun, moon and stars are darkened for a time. As the strength of the sun is reduced, it's not hard to imagine the disastrous effect this will have on the climate. Luke 21, Jesus says there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This judgment appears to be temporary or at least until God causes the sun's heat to intensify far beyond its normal output. We're going to get to that and some future judgments. The eighth chapter of Revelation ends with the eerie announcement coming from the mouth of an eagle. We've previously seen a donkey talk in Scripture. So how difficult will it be for God to command an eagle to shout a message of doom as he flies across the sky? So Revelation 8.13 says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. By this time, certainly atheism will be all but over, following the angel of God flying through the skies, announcing the judgment. What replaces atheism will be hardcore Satanism with demon worship. Hard-hearted man still retains prideful rebellion and will not repent. And we're going to stop there, because the next chapter is Revelation 9, and I entitle that, Nightmares Do Come True. Okay? So, um, take all this exactly as it's meant to be taken. It is the revealing of things to come. As a believer, you will see this, but you will see this from the heavenly stands. Okay? You'll see your role coming up too. We're going to see our roles as believers in the Coming um, chapters of Revelation. So I hope that's not too overwhelming. I know we went super fast, but look, we covered eight chapters of Revelation tonight. That's great. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the um, attentive ears, the minds, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would just um, remove from the minds anything that I said incorrectly, Lord. And I pray that you would allow the truth of your word just to sink deep into every heart. I pray your blessing on each one as they go out, Lord. And we thank you for the blessing of the scripture of Revelation. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.